The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. All right, church, good morning. Take your Bibles if you, well, I guess you've already, you're already there because we just read the passage, right? So uh, Hebrews chapter 9, we continue our study in the book of Hebrews. My name's Chris. I'm one of the elders here at Gospel City Church. And uh, it's my pleasure to bring this message this morning. Um, I don't know about you. I'm kind of a cinephile. I like watching movies. Um, I enjoy going to the theater and sitting and smelling the popcorn and watching all the movies. And usually I go see a movie because before I go see the movie, I see a trailer, right? You see a trailer, and the trailer kind of gets you excited about what to expect when you sit to watch the movie. So the most recent movie that I went to see, we went to see the, I don't even remember the name of the movie. It's the new Hunger Games movie, something about a ballad of snakes and songbirds. I can't remember the name. Who cares about the name, right? It's just the name. But we went to see the movie, and I was kind of excited to see the movie because I had seen the trailer. I was familiar with some of the characters, some of the themes that they were going to explore. And, and yeah, so the trailer got me a little bit excited about going to see the movie. But the trailer is not the movie, right? Like sometimes I watch trailers and after watching the trailer, I think, well, I don't need to see that movie. <laughs> I know everything that's going to happen already. It's entirely spoilt for us. You know, when we look at the Old Covenant, we see something of a trailer. We see something of a movie trailer. It's, it is a, as we talked last week, it is a shadow of things to come, right? It's, it's just a shadow in this earthly sense of what we can expect in an eternal heavenly place. And as we come to the passage today, we see very specifically the author of Hebrews taking us to the tabernacle, and through explaining some things about the tabernacle, he doesn't tell us everything about the tabernacle, but he does build up a bit of anticipation about what worship will be like in the heavenly realms when we are face-to-face -face with God. It's not the real thing. It's simply something to build up anticipation and expectation for the future. There are two points in this passage that I want us to, to learn from today. The first point is this. You're going to find it in the first five verses. And we're going to see that God provides a place to be present with his people. So this is going to build on the idea that God desires to be with his people. And so he provides a place. And then number two in verses 6 through 10, we're going to look at how God prepares a way for his people to worship him. He prepares a way for his people to worship him. So as we get ready to dive in and, and study this passage, will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that today we are able to gather here because you have called us to yourself and we gather in order to exalt you and to learn from you. Father, we pray that as we consider what the tabernacle teaches us about our worship, and how it prepares us even for a greater time of intimacy with you in your presence in the coming age. Would we be open to your teaching? Would you transform us and build in us excitement and anticipation for what is to come? We ask you to 
sanctify this time. Use it for your good pleasure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first five verses, let me read these for us again as we consider God providing a place to be present with his people. Verses 1 through 5 say that even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. A tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. And we have to remember that when he says we cannot speak of these things in detail, he's just giving a brief summary of what was familiar to his audience already. And so he wasn't, in, he wasn't trying to go deep into every detail and pull out every possible meaning, but rather he was just reminding them that there was a provision that God made to dwell with his people. His audience would be familiar with the story of the Old Covenant of how the people of Israel left, they fled, they escaped Egypt, and how God came to them in the wilderness and dwelt with them in the tabernacle. And so as these images are brought to their mind, they are reminded that God desires to be present with his people. And he goes to this tabernacle because the tabernacle was given at the time of the Sinai Old Covenant, right? As he was giving the Old Covenant, uh, as he was giving the Ten Commandments and everything within the Old Covenant, part of that was instructions on building this tabernacle, in building the tabernacle, there were regulations for worship, which God gave. He gave regulations for worship. We, we don't think about that very often, do we? That there are regulations for our worship, that we do not get to decide how to come to God, but rather God is the one who decides for us how we are to come to him. The old covenant had regulations for worship. And we see that in the design of this tabernacle and the contents within the tabernacle give us these regulations. The author reminds us of the tabernacle which served as God's temporary dwelling place among the Israelites. The details for this you can go back and read this afternoon in Exodus chapter 25 through 30 if you're so inclined. And these reveal that Israel was not to worship God like the pagan nations around them worshipped their gods. There was something different, something unique about the God of Israel. And the way that they worshipped him was going to communicate something about the God they worshipped. They were not to speculate, innovate, or experiment with their worship. They were not to worship God in any way they wanted. No, the one true living God told them how and where to worship him. His regulations for worship were specifically authorized by his word. And a failure to follow these regulations, these commands, led to dire consequences. You can go read Leviticus 10 to find out what those consequences could be. This passage that we're looking at today addresses the tabernacle. It goes all the way back to that tabernacle, that tent of meeting that the Israelites would take with them as they wandered in the wilderness because it represented God being with them. And yet, 
this old covenant is not now in effect. It's the old covenant. It's passed away. There is a new, better covenant, which we talked about last week. So this old covenant is made obsolete, but still within the old covenant, there are things that we can learn which benefit us as followers of Jesus in his new and better covenant. There's two categories within this component of uh, the place of worship that we can see that is really helpful for us. First, we see that the design of the tabernacle reminds God's people that God wants to be present with his people in a special way. He wants to be with his people in a special way. And secondly, we see in these first five verses that, that the artifacts within the tabernacle remind God's people of his faithfulness, of his providence, and his holiness. These regulations of worship were symbolic, and they communicate something to us about the character of God and the covenant with which he had, which he had with, the, with the people of God. So let's consider God's special presence with his people. Now, we don't really see anything mentioned particularly about his special presence, but everything about the tabernacle was about housing his presence. It is where he dwelt with his people, particularly within the most holy place. The tabernacle stood at the center of old covenant worship. It was the earthly place of worship. It's described as being an earthly place of holiness here in this passage, in verse 1. It's not earthly in the sense that it was just located on earth, but rather that it was made with materials. It was tangible. It was here. It was localized. It is a contrast with chapter 8, verse 2, where we're told that the true tabernacle is set up by the Lord and not a mere human being. As a man-made sanctuary, this tabernacle is not only temporary, but it also participates in the imperfection of this world. It's a shadow of the true heavenly realities to come. It was the place where God temporarily dwelt with his people. And it's also the place where Israel offered sacrifices. We'll read about some of these sacrifices in verses 6 through 10. But it was the place where the priests did the ministry of sacrifice and, and mediating between God and his people. The Jewish Christians that read this sermon understood that this holy place and the most holy place were linked to the way God met with his people, the way that his presence was manifest among them. So when we think about God's presence, what are we to think? I mean, as a theologian, we often teach, theologians often teach about God's omnipresence. God's omnipresence teaches that basically he is present everywhere at all times. As A.W. Tozer writes, God is imminent in his creation. There is no place in heaven or earth or hell where men and women may hide from his presence. God is at once far off and near, and in him men and women move and live and have their being. His being knows no limits. Therefore, his presence cannot be limited. There is no place beyond him for anything to exist. One other theologian confesses that God is over all things, 
under all things, outside all things, within but not enclosed, without but not excluded, above but not, but not raised up, below but not depressed, holy above presiding, holy beneath sustaining, holy within filling. He's present everywhere at all times. There is no one like our God. And yet, we're told that his presence exists in the most holy place. That he manifests his presence there. Manifests his presence there. We see a teaching here that there is something about God's special presence or his manifest presence. So even though we understand that God is present everywhere, we also recognize that he is present in a very particular way. It's a reality, a reality that may not seem relevant to many people on the face of the earth who have no sense of his presence, who think of God as being a distant God, not a close God. And they just don't understand that he can be present with us because they think he's this just impersonal being. But as a personal being, he makes himself known to us in special ways. You see, followers of Jesus know of God's manifest presence experientially. The manifest presence of the Spirit may not be visible or, or oral. It's not something that we can see or touch or manipulate. We can't sense it physically, but we can experience him. And at the times of his choosing, the Spirit manifests his presence. And what we know to be true about God becomes experiential knowledge. What we confess in our creeds becomes loving familiarity. There is something about God dwelling with his people in a very special way in this most holy place. Yes, he's with them everywhere they go. He's above and underneath and around and beside and all that. But then there's a special presence with them. We also see that God symbolizes his faithfulness, his holiness, and his providence with the items in the tabernacle. Each item symbolizes, in a broad sense, God's acts of redemption, his acts of faithfulness, his acts of holiness. Consider, for example, Aaron's staff that he mentions here. Uh, he says uh, Aaron's staff served as a reminder of how God kept his people alive in the wilderness. The tablets are the tablets of the covenant. The tablets that God wrote the Ten Commands on with his own finger. They reminded God's people of his covenant with them and their responsibility to uphold the covenant by their obedience. The golden urn, which held the manna, was a reminder of God's sustaining grace as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. God sustained them with bread. The cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat guarded the presence of God. And the use of gold within the most holy of holies communicates the infinite value of heavenly worship. Because in that day and age, there was nothing more valuable than gold. And it expressed this infinite value. Well, since the Old Covenant is obsolete, 
It's not what instructs us today. What are we to glean from these old regulations? Well, there's two things I think that for new covenant believers, followers of Jesus, two things that we can glean from these regulations that are important. The first one is that God manifests his special presence to us when we gather. You see, God still wants to be with his people. Dwelling with his people is what God is attempting to do. And we read that there is a difference now, or we understand there's a difference now, that we don't have a tent that we move around in a special room where God relegates his special presence, but rather we gather as new covenant believers to focus upon a person, but not a place. You see, a central location of worship is no longer required by God. Whereas in the old covenant, they had to move the tabernacle with them. It was always there as a reminder of his presence. But now we don't have a central localized location where we worship. Uh, we, we have something in the system that's flashing. Uh, we, we have no centralized location where we have to meet. I mean, as Gospel City Church, we meet in this location because it is the place that we rent and that we've agreed upon to meet in and, and gather together. But you know what? If we couldn't gather in this place, we could gather somewhere else. There's nothing about this place that is particularly holy other than the fact that when we gather, God's presence is with us and this place becomes sanctified by his presence among us. You see... We know that it is not about the place, but it is about the person. Christians are not united to God because of the place that they gather. Christians are united to God by Christ. The Spirit unites us with the Father so that we now worship God in spirit and in truth. John 4:24. We worship him because of Christ. Further, we're told in the New Testament that Christ dwells within his people. Matthew 18.20 tells us that where two or three are gathered, Christ is there among them. Well, two or three are gathered in agreement, I should say. John teaches in his gospel about Jesus coming to earth. He teaches about his incarnation in chapter 1, that Famous passage, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 tells us that the Word put on flesh and dwelt among us. It's interesting that John uses tabernacle language when he says that Christ, or the Word, put on flesh. Literally, it is that he pitched his tent and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. The Son of God came to us. Whereas the epicenter of worship in the Old Covenant was the tabernacle, the epicenter of worship in the New Covenant is not a place, but it's a person, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we are told, is building his church. He's building his church by joining together believers who are called by Peter living stones, being built up into a spiritual house, a house where God's presence dwells. 
Yes, he's with us everywhere at all times. We cannot escape his presence. And yet there is something about gathering together as a body of believers where God meets with us in a special way. Do you come to church anticipating meeting with God in a special way? Or do you just see it as another spiritual exercise that you have to do on your spiritual checklist? Weekly reading your Bible, weekly praying, weekly going to church and just check, 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 check. Or do you come with a holy anticipation that God is going to meet with you as you gather with your brothers and sisters in Christ? There is something unique about the gathering of Christ's people. Uh, as a church, we read a year or so ago a book called Rediscover Church by Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen, where they make this observation that in the gathered church, heaven touches down on planet Earth. Heaven touches down on planet Earth. You realize when we gather in the name of Jesus, there is something unique where heaven is on earth. In a way that heaven is not on earth when we're not gathered. There is something about our gathering that communicates God's presence to us. Yes, he is omnipresent, but there is something very special about us gathering. Well, not only do we see that his presence is important through the holy place and the most holy place, but we also see something through the different symbols or the artifacts that are mentioned in the worship Right? We talk about Aaron's rod or the, the altars and the incense, the, all these things. But, but did you know that in the New Covenant, we have our own artifacts that we use for worship, our own symbols that we use in worship that remind us of God's faithfulness and his presence, his providence, and his sustaining grace in our life? You know that we're given regulations for worship as New Covenant churches? I bet if I gave you enough time, you could come up with them on your own. But let me point them out to you. First and foremost, we have a symbol called baptism. Baptism is that act where the church gathers together and recognizes those who are a part of the new covenant body of Christ. By baptizing someone, they are buried in death in the likeness of Christ, and they are raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection to walk in newness of life. It is a, it's not a real death. I mean, We've had several baptisms as a church, and when we bury someone in the water, we're not really killing them, right? It's not a literal death, but it is a symbol pointing to a spiritual reality, and the church does it. It's not just an individual who gets baptized, but the whole church participates in that. It is a regulation that we have for worship in how we remind ourselves of his faithfulness, his goodness, his grace, in the same way that in the Old Covenant, these artifacts symbolically pointed to his goodness and his grace and his mercy. Well, certainly if baptism is a symbol we use in our New Covenant worship, then naturally you would say, well, what? The Lord's Supper is another artifact. It's another symbol of our worship that we are given in how we remember and proclaim God's faithfulness, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his grace. We don't do the Lord's Supper because we think, hey, that's a good idea. We do the Lord's Supper because it was given to us. It was instituted by Christ to remember his body broken for us, to remember his blood shed for us. 
And by participating in it, we proclaim, right? Isn't that what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians? That we proclaim his death until he comes. We are given regulations. But you know, not only do we have baptism and the Lord's Supper, you know, all these one another's that are scattered throughout the new covenant about when we come together, that we should sing songs to one another, confess our sins to one another, that we should love one another, serve one another, submit to one another. You know, these activities, they're not just suggestions for how you can have a happy, healthy church. They're actually symbolically portraying what life in the kingdom is going to be like. We do these things not because, hey, I want to grow in maturity in Christ. We do these things because they point to the God who has saved us through him. So we encourage one another. We sing to one another. We teach God's word to one another. Another thing that we do is we confess truth. We say, well, how is that different from teaching? Well, you know, when we confess, when we go through our uh, catechism questions, we're confessing truth together. There, there are things that bind us together in our beliefs. We confess truth. But not only do we confess truth, we also confess sin to one another. That's what scripture tells us to do, to confess sin to one another. Confessing truth and confessing sin are examples of repentance. Most of you are going to say, well, isn't repentance like turning from sin and turning from myself and turning to God? Yes, it is. And that's why we need to confess both sin and truth. It's not just that we turn away from sin, but what are we turning to? Well, we have to turn to truth. So we confess sin and truth. In the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant, God prepares a place to be present with his people. In the Old Covenant, it was the tabernacle. In the New Covenant, it is the gathered body of believers in Jesus Christ. That is where he is present with his people in a very special way. Verses 6 through 10 tells us that God prepares a way for his people to worship him. If verses 1 through 5 tell us about the artifacts and the architecture of the tabernacle, verses 6 through 10 tell us about some of the activities that take place. Verse 6 says, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of the Reformation. Now, the time of Reformation is not talking about Martin Luther in the 16th century nailing 95 theses on the door at Wittenberg. That's not what he's talking about. Next week, Patrick is going to be able to tell us what the time of Reformation is as we consider Christ being the one to come and fulfill all of these things. But we just build up anticipation for that. 
true. Here the author shifts from the design of the tabernacle to the ministry of the priests. What is it the priests are doing on a regular basis? It's important to be reminded that the priests, they're not special, right? There's nothing about the priests that make them more special or more holy than anyone else. In the Old Covenant, the priests are special because they're Levites, because they're in the right family, right? It's not that they have a particular experience with God that by that experience he sets them apart, but rather they are special because of their lineage. And they have spiritual functions that they engage in on regular basis to, to minister for the people of God in the holy place. The regulations of worship that they follow make it possible for a holy God to dwell with his people without his righteous judgment against sin consuming them. God's special presence being with them apart from the ministry of the, of the priests, it is possible that his anger, his righteousness, would be so overwhelming that it would consume the sinful people that are there in judgment. And so there are constant sacrifices and constant ministries that are going on in order for God to dwell with his people. It is a reminder that the perfect has not yet come. You see, at that moment, these priests were continually performing these duties in the holy place every day so that God could dwell with his people. But remember, in the most holy place, only the high priest could go, and he could only go to the most holy place once a year to make offerings on the Day of Atonement for the unintentional sins of the people. The Leviticus 16 gives us a description of what would happen as the high priest carried the blood, carried blood with him into the most holy place. Because, as we learn, blood is necessary for the atonement of the high priest's sins and for the sins of the people. As we're told later in the book of Hebrews, there is no forgiveness of sins apart from the shedding of blood. The fact that fresh blood had to be shed and that entry into the most holy place made year by year shows that this blood that the high priest carried with him was ultimately not eternally effective but rather it was symbolic, pointing to a perfect sacrifice. Thus, for the Hebrews, worship by means of the tabernacle was shown to be inadequate. It was inadequate. The greatest festival of the Jewish year, the Day of Atonement, shows a paradox. The limitations of the Old Covenant and its high priesthood. They did it every year. It was a great day, but the fact that it was done every year means that there were limits upon it.
and we also learn from here that sinful men, sinful women, cannot approach a holy God apart from the sacrifice. Notice also that the priests, we are told here, they offer the blood. A lot of times in, in the Old Covenant, we read language about the sprinkling of blood and the way that blood is applied. But here we specifically see that the priest is making an offering, and he's offering himself. He's offering the blood on behalf of himself. Verse 7. Yes. <laughs> he goes into the holy place once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. It is an offering that is made. It is an offering that is made in order for the people to be made clean. Actually, it's not to make the people clean, but it's to keep things clean so that God's presence would remain with them. So when we see here that the text tells us that it is for the unintentional sins of the people, in verse 7, what, what are we talking about? I mean, normally when we think about sin, we think about sin in two categories, right? We think about sins of commission, and we think about sins of omission. Sins of commission are those sins whereby we intentionally and willfully transgress God's laws and expectations. We commit sin, a sin of rebellion. But we also think about sins of omission, where there is a clear command given to us by God that we just neglect, that we don't do. It's a sin of omission. And we often think about these as being the sins. But, you know, in this day of atonement, right, not only are the sins of omission and the sins of commission dealt with, but it is the unintentional sins of the people that are dealt with as well. Because, you see, we are so sinful that we're not even aware of the sins that we commit sometimes. We're just, we just don't even know. And God is so concerned with our sins that he makes provision on how to deal with all our sins completely so that we can be with him and he can be with us. You know, I've had conversations this week with several people in our church who have shared with me about ways that people have sinned against them unintentionally. Whether it's just by a stray comment and, you know, someone saying, I know they didn't really mean that, but it just bothered me. Or someone did this or someone did that, and I know they didn't mean that in a negative way, but it just bothers me. And I can't let it go. If you were told in the New Testament that if you cause a brother or sister to sin, well, there should be repentance and there should be reconciliation and restoration of that relationship. And you know what? We end up, when we do not address those fractures in our relationships, you know what happens to those fractures? The enemy likes to get into those fractures and dig deep wedges between us so that we experience disunity. And that's one reason that we go about confessing our sins to one another. That's one reason why when uh, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus teaches us about this process of going to your brother who sins against you. 
that there might be reconciliation. So I'll just set this up. Some of you in this room are going to have some awkward conversations in the coming weeks. And it's okay. It's good. It's good that there be awkward conversations. Because you know what? That means that we are pressing into one another as brothers and sisters in Christ to build up the unity of the faith together. If we just ignore one another, well then what we're saying is, is we don't care. So if you are approached or if you need to approach someone, do it in love, do it in kindness, recognizing that the approaching one another in love is something that builds us up. It does not tear us apart. It is the not approaching that actually tears us apart. Ignoring or pretending that it doesn't exist or just trying to bear it up. Forgive and forget, right? Well, we shouldn't just forget until there's reconciliation. There are unintentional sins that we commit and we need to deal with those. We're told here that the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. This is important for us to recognize because what the author of Hebrews is saying is to these Jewish Christians who want to go back to the old ways of worship, he's reminding them that this old way of worship, this, these regulations from the old covenant, as long as those are in place the better way can't come. So it's not that there's a physical temple that's standing at the time of this letter being written. It's not that the Jewish Christians needed to go tear it down, but rather it's what is primary, what has preeminence in their worship. And if they're looking to the tabernacle, if they're looking to that, then they're never going to experience and enjoy the worship that God has for them as he comes to them in his special presence. The first tent is a symbol pointing to a present time. This present time, it symbolizes the fact that gifts and sacrifices were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. This deficiency extended to all who participated in the old covenant worship. Not simply the priests as they sacrificed, but it extended to all the people. The old covenant provided a means for cleansing that was external but it could not purify the conscience. It could not purify the heart. The person's internal moral compass by which they determined right and wrong could not be cleansed by this worship. No, it would take someone else, someone who is more complete, more full, perhaps fully God and fully man to shed his blood that our complete sinfulness could be dealt with. You see, these rituals could not perfect. Instead, they left the participants with a sense of guilt, recognizing that they were sinful. They recognized that these were merely external regulations. Yes, the arrangements for this type of worship described here uh, in Hebrews were imposed at Sinai, but they were only meant to be a for a they were only meant to be in place for a limited amount of time because there would be a day where the fullness of God would come 
and we could draw near to him in confidence. And as long as that old covenant was in place, we could not draw near to him in confidence. So the priests, with their patterns and their regulations, would go to God. We, too, have patterns in our worship that we follow in daily duties and in regular, ongoing activities. We read in Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, that Paul had expectations for how the church was to conduct itself when they gathered. He tells Timothy, I write these things to you so that you may know how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. There's regulations and expectations on how we gather. Now, it's not that we have to like do any like fancy, like, I don't know, any, we, it's not like things that we have to do to check off a list, but it's, it's about our attitudes, our love towards one another, our, our conversations, our conduct with one another, that we should train ourselves in godliness to love one another, to build one another up. We also recognize that in the New Covenant, we do not worship at a distance, but rather we gather in community. We actually take up space and time. That's why during COVID, worshiping online was so awkward for us and felt so foreign. Yes, there were things about it that were necessary to do at that time because we were forbidden from gathering in public places, but we recognize that that was just a poor substitute for the better of gathering together in time and space and a physical location where we can look at one another and we can fist bump one another or shake hands or give hugs. God forbid, even a holy kiss. That's a joke. <laughs> but we gather together and we imitate the early church devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship together, the breaking of bread and prayers, these things that are ongoing in our worship. We are told in 1 Corinthians 5 that we are to keep the church holy. There is a holiness, an expectation that we have about the behavior and the things that we deem to be honoring and glorifying to God and those things which do not represent uh, what it means to follow Christ. And we are to cast those out. We're to recognize the body as we're united in Christ, as we're given instructions in taking the Lord's Supper. We're told to recognize the body. We're told in 1 Corinthians 14 that after this long explanations about how to use gifts in our gatherings, uh, Paul tells us that we're to be orderly in what we do. So whatever you think about all the gifts that are manifest and how they're used, the, the end of all of those instructions are, we're told to be orderly. And so when we gather, we try to have an order so that it makes sense what we're trying to do. Throughout the New Testament, we're told to sing hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. We gather regularly, as we'll be told in Hebrews shortly, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. These are, if you will, regulations in our worship. There are different regulations than the old covenant, but we see that there are expectations that God has for us in how we worship. We do not get to innovate, experiment, or come up with the ways of worship. We rather follow what has been given to us in his word. The author ends by saying that 
There's gifts and sacrifices offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. There is a time to look forward to where things will be made new, a more perfect way. A more perfect way. This part of Hebrews 9 describes the limitations, the obstacles that old covenant people, the old covenant people of God had to direct access with God. They could not directly access him. They were separated in the tabernacle by a curtain. And yet we read in the new covenant that that curtain has been torn in two. If you look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, let me read this for us in context because this is one of my favorite passages in all the New Covenant or all the New Testament. I'll begin in verse 45. We read that from the sixth hour there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This is the story of Jesus' crucifixion. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Verse 51. And behold... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Christ's death on the cross led to the tent, the the curtain that separated the most holy place, the place where symbolically God's special presence dwelt. With the curtain tearing open, Now it means that all people have access to the special presence of God. Christ is the one who brought reform. In his death, he makes his believers complete. Under the new covenant, we no longer need to make a distinction between the holy and most holy place. When Christ, uh, when Christ cried, it is finished, and the veil tore in two, we see a symbol that God's presence is now available to anyone who comes to him through faith in Christ. We don't need a high priest to meet with God on our behalf. We need Christ. We need Christ. We don't need someone to pray for us on this earth. We need Christ. And as we've learned through the entire book of Hebrews, that Christ fills those roles, doesn't he? He is the one who makes atonement for us. He is the one who mediates for us. He is the one who prays for us. We don't need someone who is here on earth today. We need Christ. We don't need another sacrifice. We just need Christ. I wonder, I wonder if when we look at the temple or we look at the tabernacle, if we just see 
regulations and we just see rules? Or do we see a trailer, a movie trailer of sorts, building up anticipation for the one day where we will see God face to face, that we will dwell in his presence, not impaired by sin, but that as we see Christ, we will be like him. Are you looking forward to that time? If you are, then let's press on together, encouraging one another how we can continue in love and in good works until that day. And if you're not, hear these words of encouragement to ask why. Why am I not looking forward to that? If you're not looking forward to that, let me suggest that you should be concerned. If you're not anticipating with joy and excitement the day when you will be with God in his full presence, you should be concerned. And if you hear my words and you say, okay, I'm concerned, then let me say this. When worship is done today, come find me and say, hey, let's talk. I'm concerned. Tell me how, how I should be how I should be living. How should I have access? What is it that I need to change in my life that I actually do look forward to being with God in his presence? It's an invitation for today. Looking forward to being with him because he has made the way. We don't follow the old covenant regulations in worship because we have Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the tabernacle, that it points us to your expectations for us in worship. May we, as we approach you, approach you in the perfect sacrifice of Christ, washed in his blood, made clean and acceptable to you. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.